Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we're going to look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, it is such a comfort to know that we've been given all the righteousness that we'll ever need. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us. And we pray that you would guide us now by your spirit, minister to us as we look to your word. Show us things about yourself. Show us the truth about ourselves and show us our Savior most of all. We pray that as we behold him, we would trust him. And we pray that you would give us that grace and give us that faith for Christ's sake. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I'm not going to uh, labor a long introduction. We are continuing on this morning in the book of Genesis and continuing on in the section of Genesis pertaining to Abraham. We have a lot to cover today. This has been a, an intense sermon prep week for me, uh, maybe even more intense than most. Two weeks ago, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, two weeks ago we covered Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. And in that text, we considered the call of Abram out of paganism. We considered the promise of the gospel. The gospel was preached to Abraham. And we considered the beginnings of the covenant God would make with Abraham. Last week, we looked at chapter 12 and verse 10 through the end of chapter 14. And we considered the escapades, the business down in Egypt where Abraham effectively sold his wife out to defilement out of fear and self-preservation. But then we looked at Abram and Lot separating and settling in their various places in the land. And we looked at Abram's heroic efforts in rescuing Lot and the people of Sodom. And we also considered Melchizedek, uh, who is the great high priest after whom Jesus Christ is patterned. We thought about all of those things last week. Today, we are going to consider, again, the covenant God made with Abraham. And we're going to consider the plan that Abraham and Sarah make and execute in order to have a child through Sarah's servant, Hagar. So that's the material for today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be looking again today at Genesis 15 through 17. Chapters 15 and 17 pertain to the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 16 pertains to that episode about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And so what we're going to do is take these chapters in those two parts, quite simply. So we're going to begin by considering the Abrahamic covenant from chapters 15 and 17. And then we will actually spend the latter half of the sermon on chapter 16, considering Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. So part one, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham. So two disclaimers before we even launch into this. Disclaimer number one, I am leaning heavily on the sermon from two weeks ago. The sermon from chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, leaning heavily on it today. So if you haven't listened to it, listen this morning and go find that sermon either on our website or on the podcast sermon app thing and listen to the sermon because that's going to give you a more more full-orbed presentation of God's dealings with Abraham and even the covenant that God makes with him and how the gospel was preached to Abraham. Disclaimer number two. I trust that you, by virtue of your presence here today, want to understand God's word. Amen? We do. We want to understand God's word. And in this section of the sermon, we are going to seek to do that. We are going to seek to reason together according to the book. And so let's pray that the Lord would give us grace to track. So holding together chapters 12, 15, and 17, think in these terms. What was initiated in Genesis 12 is confirmed in Genesis 15. What is confirmed in Genesis 15 is expanded in Genesis 17. There is continuity of promises between Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Genesis 15 and verse 18 summarizes God's covenant with Abraham this way. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. And then he outlines the particulars of that land, the territories that comprise it. This land, this land of Canaan was promised to Abraham and his descendants in chapter 12 and verse 7. That promise is reiterated in chapter 17 and verse 8. Again, there is great continuity 
between these passages. Like Genesis chapter 15, the scope of Genesis 17 deals directly with Abraham's descendants receiving and living in the land. Genesis 17 will also include a promise of kings coming from Abraham, as well as a demand placed on Abraham and his descendants that they keep the covenant. So from the outset, let's just begin with a few things that are high level, that are very clear. First thing, there were unconditional promises made to Abraham. Next, Abraham's belief in the promises of God were counted to him as righteousness. Next, all of Abraham's descendants who believed in the promised seed of Abraham, that is Jesus, were justified by faith on account of Christ. So all of those things that I've just articulated were communicated very clearly last or two weeks ago from Genesis 12. Also, the Abrahamic covenant promised the gospel. We thought about that two weeks ago. The Abrahamic covenant provided the one who would accomplish the gospel. Namely, Jesus is going to come from the kingdom of Israel that the Abrahamic covenant begins to establish. And the Abrahamic covenant points to something greater than itself. It typologically prefigures the new covenant that's coming. So having said that, there are two things going on with Abraham. Number one, there is the covenant made with Abraham and his physical descendants, which finds its fulfillment in Israel under the old covenant. And number two, there are eternal promises made to Abraham and his spiritual descendants, which find their fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. So let's survey chapters 15 and 17, and I'm just going to comment as we do. Put your eyes on chapter 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, not my own child. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, not my own child will be my heir. It's very kind of cool, like as we think about how God deals with people and how the Lord even dealt with Abram in his grace and mercy. The first recorded words of Abram to God are asking him, how in the world is this going to happen? I don't have any children. How is this going to happen? Then verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in your household, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse five, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. So again, like in chapter 12, a promise is made of numerous descendants. Then verse six, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, I refer you to two weeks ago. We spent a lot of time thinking about how it is that Abraham was counted righteous We thought about it from Romans 4 and Galatians 3. And we also thought about the book of Hebrews and other places. So again, I commend that sermon to you. Verse 7, we continue forward. The Lord speaks again. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So again, a promise of land. The descendants who will be as numerous as the sand on the sea will be placed in the land of Canaan. Verse 8, but he said, this is Abram again, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And now there are going to be a number of happenings in verses 9 through 17 where a covenant is going to be made. Abraham has asked for confirmation from God that he would have numerous descendants who would settle in Canaan. How can I know? So God commands Abraham in verse 9 to split several animals, or verse 9, to bring them and to split them, to lay their halves over against one another. And then the Lord puts Abraham into a deep sleep and comes to him in a vision. He tells Abraham what would happen with his offspring, how they would serve in another country for centuries, and then they would come back to occupy the land of Canaan. He's talking about Egypt and the time of slavery there. Then the Lord After all of that, explaining how this is going to go down, gives Abraham a vision of a smoking pot 
and a flaming torch passing through, passing between the animal pieces. So what this is, what's going on here, is that God is making an oath. God is the one unilaterally who is going to keep the covenant, who is going to keep his promises. He is the only one that is passing through the animals that have been cut in half. Abraham does not. And so the Lord is saying, may the same be done to me and more if I fail to keep my promise to do this for you and your descendants. Through covenant, God promised to multiply Abraham's offspring and give them the land of Canaan. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And then he outlines what the land is from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Gervishites, Jebusites. That's the territory. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. That is the summary of the covenant, according to Moses. Now we move to chapter 17. What was confirmed, what was ratified in chapter 15 is now going to be expanded in chapter 17. Put your eyes on 17, verse 1. Chapter 17 and verse 1. The Lord appears again to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So you see that conditions are introduced here. Walk in a way that is blameless before me that I may do what I've said I'll do. Then verses four through eight. Behold, the Lord says, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So now God says he will make Abraham into nations and that kings will come from him. Now, Sarah is going to be promised that same thing in verse 16 of chapter 17, where God says, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son, Abraham, by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Notably, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is promised the same thing in chapter 35 and verse 11 of Genesis, where the Lord says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. So we have this promise of land, descendants and kings. God will give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his offspring after him. And whenever you see that language of Everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. Keep in mind that these promises and this covenant is only a type of the greater thing that's coming. It's the same thing that we understand, for example, with the Passover. When the Lord says you will do this forever. Like there's no end to keeping the Passover. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, bro, we don't do that anymore. Exactly because the thing that the Passover was about has already come. Christ, who is the Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. The meal that we partake of here is the fulfillment of Passover. And it's all pointing to the new heavens and the new earth where we will partake of the marriage supper of the lamb. So whenever you see this eternal language, don't let that throw you off. This is how the scriptures speak. It is a revelation in a type of something that is greater to come. So all of these temporal promises that God is making to Abraham and his descendants. They point to eternal promises. And at the same time, these temporal promises to Abraham and his descendants are significant in and of themselves. Through these promises and the kingdom of Israel that's established by them, the Messiah will come and the plan of God is accomplished. Let's keep tracking in chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Notice that you will keep my covenant. You, the language is now changing from I will to you shall. 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the Lord makes a demand here of Abraham and his descendants that they keep the covenant. Circumcision of all males on the eighth day is the way in which Abraham and his descendants will do that. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant between the Lord and Abraham. And this covenant is the promise of land, descendants, and kings. Circumcision, it's quite clear, was a condition of these covenant blessings. Or even a condition for them, we might say. In other words, the blessings of Abraham's covenant to his physical descendants of land, numerous peoples, and kings were not available to those who were not circumcised. Notice, too, the language of the text, that any individual who does not meet the condition of circumcision to use the language of the scriptures is cut off from his people and has broken God's covenant. The promises of the covenant are unconditional to the nation. God is going to keep his word. He will establish Israel. They will be as numerous as the sand on the sea. Kings will come from them. They will inherit the land. God's going to do it. And the covenant is conditional to individuals. Individuals can be cut off. Now, let's look at verses 15 to 18 of chapter 17. God there says to Abram, he's going to talk about Sarai, his wife. He's going to say, don't call her Sarai anymore. Call her Sarah. I will bless her, he says. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham falls on his face in laughter and says to himself, and we'll come back to this principle here in a minute, says to himself, shall a child really be born to a man who's 100? He's pushing 100. He's 99 technically. And shall Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? And even though it seems that people aged at different rates back then than they do today, they're still getting up there in years. So Abraham laughs to himself, how is this going to happen? And then in verse 18, Abraham makes another appeal to God because you realize that he already has a son by Hagar named Ishmael. And so he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, can we just change this up a little bit? We've already, we already got Ishmael. This other thing that you're saying seems impossible. Why don't we do it this way? But then the Lord responds beginning in verse 19. He says, no. But your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Now, just an observation on this language of how God's going to establish his covenant with Isaac through Sarah, but not with Ishmael through Hagar. Galatians, you can write this down if you're that kind of person. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 28. In that text, the Apostle Paul says that Hagar and her son Ishmael, on the one hand, and then Sarah and her son Isaac, on the other, represent two different covenants. It's a big deal, biblically. So, Hagar, Ishmael represent the covenant of works associated with the law. Sarah and Isaac represent the covenant of grace associated with God's promise. That's significant in that in verse 23 and verse 25 of chapter 17 back here in Genesis, Ishmael is going to receive the sign of circumcision. God has already said, I'm not establishing my covenant with him, but he's going to receive a covenant sign. People in our confessional heritage, by that I mean like Second London Baptist Confession heritage, understand that to be saying that circumcision was not the sign of the covenant of grace. Rather, it was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his physical descendants. Ishmael 
represents a different covenant, the covenant of works, not the covenant of grace, yet he receives the sign of circumcision. This is because circumcision was never intended to be the sign of the covenant of grace. Baptism will be that. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham and his physical descendants, it found its fulfillment in Israel. I said that earlier. Consider just some of the language of the scripture later on in the Old Testament about how the Lord kept his promises to Abraham. Consider this from Joshua chapter 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel. This is when Israel has taken over the promised land, right? Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Whenever you hear that language of their fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Significant. Not one promise that he'd made to the house of Israel failed. He kept them all. Then consider the words of Nehemiah chapter 9. This is after the Israelites have been exiled in Babylon and they're brought back now to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. These words, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are faithful. The covenant you made with Abraham to give him this land, you've kept it because you are faithful. Think about the promise of many descendants who would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The words of 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 20. Judah and Israel, the kingdom that would come from Abraham, right? Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. The prophets are replete with language of describing Israel as being of the sand of the sea in terms of number. Think about the promise of kings that would come from Abraham. Well, they did quite clearly, most notably the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, most notably amongst those, the Davidic line of kings. So in summary, the people of God through history, according to the prophets, have seen that God kept his promises to Abraham through what he did in Israel. Now, the eternal promises that God made to Abraham, which we thought about pointedly two weeks ago, how the gospel was preached to him. The eternal promises made to Abraham find their fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. And there is something qualitatively different about this new covenant in Christ. In other words, the new covenant and the covenant made with Abraham are not one and the same. They are of a different substance. There is no other covenant. I said this two weeks ago before Christ that reveals the new covenant to the extent that the Abrahamic covenant does. And yet they are not one and the same. Consider the language of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 31. God is going to make a new covenant that is not like what has come before. It is not like what I did with your fathers. And it involves, the Lord says, the forgiveness of sins and everyone who is a part of that covenant knowing him. Consider the language of Ezekiel in chapter 11 and chapter 36, where he says that God is going to do this new thing where he is going to give his people new hearts and put his spirit within them. Consider even the language of Jesus on his last night on earth, where he institutes this meal that we will partake of in just a moment. This cup, he says, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the blood of Christ established something new, the new covenant. Consider the writer to the Hebrews. In chapter 7 and verse 22 of Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant than the one that came before. And whenever we're talking about that one that came before, we're talking about the old covenant that was made up of the covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David. 
In Hebrews 8 and verse 6, the writer says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Those better promises are the promises of the gospel and the new covenant. In the new covenant, there are no conditions. Zero. We talked about how there were conditions, even the condition of circumcision, if you were going to partake of the blessing of Abraham physically. There are no conditions in the new covenant. Why? Because Christ has met every single condition. It is quite literally given to us. We receive what Christ has done on our behalf. One could be cut off from the covenant God made with Abraham. We thought about that. No one is cut off from the new covenant in Christ. Why? Because Christ, the guarantor of the covenant, keeps everyone who has been united to him. You could be united to Abraham in his covenant and be lost. You will not be lost if you're united to Christ. To have Abraham as your covenant head under his covenant via circumcision did not put you into a relationship with Jesus as your savior. That's important. To be related to Abraham by covenant did not mean that you were related to Jesus by covenant. Faith, as a result of the circumcision of the heart, did that. And it always has done that. This was true for Abraham. By faith, right, on account of trusting God's promises, was he declared righteous by the Lord. This is true for us. Those who are of faith are the sons and daughters of Abraham spiritually, Galatians 3, 7. All the saints of all time have been saved by Christ and on account of him. Now, we're 20 something minutes into this sermon and you're sitting here thinking like, bro, this is a lot. This is dense. And I'm with you. I agree. And you might even be thinking like this stuff with covenants and Abraham and Israel. Like, why did God do it this way? This is a lot to process. And you've probably never sat in a sermon where this has been discussed like this. And I'm aware of that, too. Well, why did God do it exactly this way? I can't answer that question because I do not know his mind in full. The secret things belong to the Lord, and we trust him with those. But what has been revealed belongs to us and our children. Amen? And we trust him in terms of what he has told us about himself and his ways with us. We can at least say that the way he did it through Abraham, establishing Israel, bringing Christ this way, he demonstrated that he uses small and insignificant things of the world to accomplish his purposes. He does not work in obvious ways. He doesn't work in the ways that men would work. That's clear. We can say that he established a special kingdom within the larger kingdom of the world through which the savior of the world would come. That's clear. We can say that God demonstrated through all of this that he and he alone is the one who saves and sustains his people. We can say that through Abraham and Israel, God would give his law to reveal what he requires. Through Israel, God would establish a priesthood and a sacrificial system. Through Israel, God would establish feasts and special days. And he did all of that for this reason. To teach us more about his Christ, who would come to save us from our sins and give us righteousness. All of those things that came before Christ were about him. This is what the Lord has done. All of this to teach us more of the great salvation that God has planned for those who love him and trust his son. We can at least say that. Now we're moving on to part two of the sermon. We're going to look at chapter 16. We've moved on now from the consideration of the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to consider this episode, this account of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. This is definitely the soap opera portion of the sermon as compared to part one. So let's survey chapter 16. You're going to see a lot of parallels here between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis 16. You're also going to see some parallels to the stuff that we considered in Genesis chapter 12 down in Egypt. Things are not going to go swimmingly well. So just prepare yourselves for that. You've already heard me read it earlier, so nobody's going to fall out of their chairs. Let's go. Verse 1, beginning here. Sarai is going to suggest to Abram, her husband, a plan. Because God has promised Abraham that his very own son would be his heir. Not Eliezer of Damascus, but Abraham's own son would be his heir. So 
in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16, Sarah, I'm going to call her Sarah because it's just simpler. Sarah says, look, up to now I've been prevented from having children. I don't have any kids. We don't have any children together, and it's been a while. And she comes up with a plan, therefore, to try to acquire for herself an heir. She has this Egyptian servant, this female servant named Hagar, that they probably acquired down in Egypt. Because if you remember, Pharaoh was giving Abraham all kinds of stuff, animals and servants and the like. And so her plan, Sarah's plan, is for Abraham to have relations with Hagar. To con- they can conceive a child this way, and this is going to be how Sarah and Abraham obtain a child. And then we read at the end of verse 2 that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And that has that ring of Genesis 3 in the fall where we read that Adam listened to the voice of his wife, right? And that is, I am not introducing anything here like a male-female dynamic. I am simply saying that the scripture echoes itself. This is not good, in other words. What's happening here? We can say that. Verse 3. Sarah takes Hagar and gives her to Abraham. And she gives her to Abraham, not just as like a surrogate. That wouldn't have been awesome, but that would have been what it was. She doesn't just give him to her like, or her to him as like a concubine or something. She gives her to him as a wife. Then, beginning of verse 4, Abraham has relations with Hagar, and she concedes. So, Just like in Genesis 12, when Abraham looked at Sarah and said, hey, tell them that you're my sister so that it might go well with me and they'll treat me well for your sake. And his plan worked and it brought ruin. The same is true here. The plan works. Exactly what Sarah had suggested they do comes to pass. Hey, have relations with my servant and we'll obtain a child this way. So that occurs. Her plan works. And then in the second half of verse 4, through the next several verses, we see that immediately the plan backfires. Hagar, upon conceiving a child, looks down on Sarah. That's what's meant by the language of looking on her mistress with contempt. I mean, think about what's going on here. Hagar had been a servant, but now she is bearing the one that is going to be Abraham's heir, for goodness sakes. The dynamic, needless to say, has changed. Between her and Sarah. Sarah then reacts in verse 5. She says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. This whole business of how Hagar is treating me now. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Like, this is serious. In reading verse 5, It's hard not to think about all of us, every one of us. Is this not how we are? This is exactly how humans operate. Every person hearing the sound of my voice does this. We come up with ideas. Like in this situation, we look at the text and we're like, uh, hold the phone. Like this whole plan was Sarah's idea. Her plan works. Then it backfires and she blames Abraham for what has gone down. We ought not think that because we do the exact same thing. We saw this in the garden with Adam and Eve. God asks Adam, what have you done? He blames Eve. Eve, what have you done? She blames the serpent. It's what we do. And then Abraham's going to react to Sarah in verse 6, and it is not going to get any better. If anything, it keeps getting worse. Verse 6, Abram says to Sarah, look, your servant is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. And then we read that Sarah treats her harshly, resulting in Hagar fleeing from her. So Abraham here effectively just passes it back to Sarah and says, do whatever you want. You're upset, do whatever you want. And so Sarah treats Hagar harshly. If anything, I would say this, the person in this story that is worthy of sympathy is Hagar. My goodness. I mean, she was a servant who was given to her master. She had no choice in this. She's taken from her homeland. She's given to this man. She has relations with this older man, conceives a child, and now her mistress is treating her terribly to the point that she's fleeing into the desert. Now, in all of this, in this gross mistreatment of Hagar by Abraham and Sarah, we see again the ebbs and the flows of Abraham's life. 
I made a number of comments last week. I will not make them all again about there being a reason that we don't preach sermon series about how to be like Old Testament saints because their lives were just like ours. There was, just think about Abraham's life. There was the whole fiasco down in Egypt from chapter 12. Then there is the heroic, courageous stuff when he goes and rescues Lot and the people of Sodom. There is his belief in the promises of God, and he is counted righteous on account of his promised offspring, Jesus. He then has another vision in which God makes a covenant with him. Like, that's epic stuff. And then, right on the heels of that, he agrees to sleep with his wife's servant. And then, when the whole thing backfires, he effectively acts like a coward and shows no concern for the woman he has impregnated. All of this results in a pregnant woman running off into the desert where she could die along with the child she's carrying in her womb. And Abraham doesn't do anything about it. He functionally stands there with his hands in his pockets and is like, do whatever you want. In other words, brothers and sisters, Abraham's life looks like your life, looks like my life. There is a mixture of good and bad. There is a mixture of righteous acts and sin. Abraham blows it in some really big ways, and yet God is gracious to him. If you want to see yourself in Abraham, see yourself that way. In the face of your sin, God remains gracious. Praise be to his name. Abraham is righteous by the means of faith in the promised one like we are. And at the same time, he is a sinner like we are. Such has been the experience of every child of God this side of the resurrection. We live a life where we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Saint by the virtue of the merits of Christ applied to us by faith. Sinner because we still have a corrupt flesh that wages war against our spirit. This situation with Abraham and his sin even again, like we thought about this last week, how surely to goodness after this whole episode in Egypt and how badly that went, Abraham will never do anything like this again. But he does. He's doing this now. He's going to do the exact same thing he did in Egypt in chapter 20 when he's going to sell Sarah out again. It sounds like the experience of Abraham sounds just like the man in Mark 9 who falls before Jesus and says, I believe and help my unbelief. This sounds like Paul in Romans chapter 7 where I delight in the law of God in my inner man, but whenever I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. There are good things that I want to do, and I don't find myself doing them. There are bad things that I don't want to do, and I find myself engaging in them way, way too often. To the point that Paul says of himself that he is a wretched man in need of deliverance. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That was Abraham's plea. It was Paul's plea. It's our plea. Who will deliver us? Wretched sinners that we are. We often sing here at CBC, I need thee every hour. Yes, we do. We are in desperate need of grace always. We sang today, Lord, I need you. Yes, we do. My one defense, my righteousness in my worst moments and my best ones. We often think and we are often told that growth in the Christian faith means that we get stronger and we get better to the point where we don't need as much. In reality, saints, growth in this thing called the Christian faith is something else. It is seeing more clearly the depth of our need. That's growth. Seeing more clearly how utterly dependent we are on God at every moment. And I don't just mean for you to take your next breath. Of course, you're dependent on him for that. But how dependent we are on him every moment for his grace, lest we run off into heinous sin. Were it not for the grace of God, there go I ought to be the refrain of our lives every time we see somebody running headlong into sin. Rather than immediately thinking, well, I would never do such a thing. 
Of course you would. You've done a million things that you have never, that you swore you would never do. So have I. Were it not for the grace of God, there go I. Growth in this thing called the Christian faith means that the longer you trust Christ and the longer you battle sin and the more need you see that you have, you begin to say with more conviction, Christ is all. He is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is all. All I have is Christ, we say. We grow more deeply into Christ and the gospel and God by the miraculous working of his spirit, changes our lives. He does that work. Back to the text, verses 7 to 14. Let's just survey the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar. Now, the angel of the Lord, whenever you see that language in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, that being is the messenger of the Father. And along with saints through history, I understand the angel of the Lord to be the second person of the Trinity. So this is God the Son when we see that language of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. So God the Son appears to Hagar and speaks to her, and they have an interchange. And this is significant. He asks, again, this is all from verses 7 to 14. He asks Hagar where she's come from and where she's going. She indicates that she's fleeing. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. He tells her to return to her mistress and to submit to her. But then he promises Hagar that she's going to have a multitude of offspring herself, that she will bear a son and call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. She will name him this because the Lord has heard her. Hagar then responds and gives the Lord a name. It's a significant situation here. In the, for the first time in the scriptures, Someone is going to be naming the Lord, and it is a female naming the Lord and says, You are a God of seeing. For truly here, I have seen him who looks after me, she said. The well where the angel of the Lord met her is called Beir Lahoi Rai, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Now, this is significant. Such is the nature of God. He is the God who sees. He is not the God who is blind to human suffering. This slave woman, she is a slave and she has been cast out. And remember, God has already been very clear that he's not going to bring his promises about through Hagar or through her son Ishmael. He's already said, I'm going to establish my covenant with Isaac. I'm going to work through Isaac, not Ishmael. Yet he cares for Hagar. Do not miss that. He does not just act mercifully toward Abraham and Sarah. He acts mercifully toward Hagar too. Such is the nature of the Lord. Then in verses 15 and 16, at the very end of the chapter, Hagar gives birth to a son and Abraham names him Ishmael. Now, as we conclude our time, the events of chapter 16 are a mess. I mean, it's hard to say whether these events or the train wreck down in Egypt are worse. It's a toss up. Pick one. And they are a result, these events in chapter 16 are a result of Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. They are going to devise a plan of their own making. They're going to figure this thing out. They're going to do it. And you can't help but think as you read this account that we as sinners have such a tendency to do this, to take things into our own hands. In a general sense, we have a hard time trusting God. We have a hard time simply taking God at his word. I mean, consider what God does with Abraham and Sarah. He puts them in a position where it is flat out impossible for them to do anything in their own power to change their circumstances. Sarah is barren. Abraham and Sarah are not young and they are getting older. The years, like really the decades, are just kind of clicking by. And regarding Sarah, like her womb is dead, dead. You know, it's not just dead. Like this is bones have turned to dust dead. I mean, you read this and you're like, yeah, she ain't having a kid. You know, and that's what they're thinking. She ain't having a kid. And that is exactly 
where God, it's clear in the text, it's exactly where the Lord wants them to be. God's like, all right, now, now I can get to work. Now I can do this in a way that will be very obvious that I'm the one who has done this. He means for Abraham and for Sarah to come to the end of themselves. He means for them to have no recourse other than to trust his promises that they would have a son. Now, that's general stuff. Specifically, as it pertains to salvation, God says, what? Salvation is of whom? The Lord, right? He tells us that he has accomplished salvation through his son. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus has done his work and the work of redemption is so over that he's seated in the heavenly places because there's nothing left to do. Yet we seem to always seek to rend salvation from God's hands. Surely, we think, there is something that we can do. Surely, we think, there is something that we must do. Surely, we think, there is a part for us to play in our own salvation. Our mentality, friends, is so often like that of the people that Jesus encountered over and over again in his earthly ministry. Our posture is like them in that we say, tell us, God, tell us what we need to do to inherit eternal life, and we'll do it. Sometimes, to our shame, we're confident that we're already doing. I'm doing what's necessary. To which we would ask this question amongst many that we could ask. What is the purpose of God in giving his law in the first place? What is the purpose of God's law? The purpose above all others. It is to use the language of Romans 5 and Galatians 3. It is to increase the trespass. It is to increase, if possible, the depth and significance of our sin. In other words, it is to show us how ruined we are. It is as though God holds up a mirror and says, here is my standard and here is you. And these two things are not close. God gave his law to force human beings to the end of ourselves. God reigns. He rules. He's a righteous judge. He rewards those who do good with eternal life. And he judges those who do evil. And the problem is that nobody is good. No fallen human being has ever kept the law. You have probably heard it said that God will never put more on us than we can handle. How many have heard that? You hear people talk this way. God will never put more on you than you can handle. That is flat out nonsense biblically. The, more absurd words have never been spoken. God is in the business of putting more on us than we could ever bear so that we might turn to him in faith. Now that can be said in a general sense, but most pointedly with respect to righteousness, with respect to salvation. God is in the business of putting more on us than we could ever bear in the form of his law and his holy requirements so that we might cast ourselves upon him. So that we might rely on his strength and grace. So that we might not put any confidence in the flesh. And so that we might not trust ourselves. You want to talk about a countercultural message. The message of the world has always been trust yourself. The message of our day. Look deep down inside yourself. Figure out who you are. Confidently trust yourself. Go about being you and don't let anybody stop you. The message of the scripture is that you ought to have two goals in life, to trust Christ more, to trust yourself less. That's maturity. God crushes us with his law so that we might be driven to his Christ. Sometimes people get it twisted when we say that the gospel is about what Jesus has done for us and contains nothing in it whatsoever for us to do. People wig out when you speak like that. People get it twisted, too, when we say that we are called to rest in Christ. People think that we mean stop trying. 
laissez-faire, whatever. Just do whatever you want because it doesn't matter. It's not what we mean. We, as the saints of God, we here, as the saints of CBC, we try at all kinds of things. We strive after stuff. We flee from sin. We pursue righteousness. We love each other. We seek to refrain from tearing each other to pieces. We try. You better believe we try. But what we mean when we say that the gospel contains nothing in it whatsoever for you to do, and what we mean when we say rest in Jesus Christ is stop trying to save yourself. You never could anyway, and you can't now. You still can't. Even this side of your conversion, you can't save yourself. Trust Christ. If you know that you have not kept God's law and will never be able to keep it adequately, that's good. Now, are you grieved that you can't? Yes. But you know that you can't. That's good. Look to the one who kept it perfectly for you and trust him. If you know that there is nothing that you can do to atone for your sin, to make up for all the ways that you have sinned against God, good. Look to the one who suffered and bled and died to make satisfaction for your sins and mine and trust him. He, as we have said, is why we are here. If we are here because of anything to do with us, call it something, but don't call it Christian. We are here because of Christ and only because of him. And we are the people who love to say, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could I be as passionate for you as, as I ever could be all the time? Could my tears forever flow? Could I be wrecked over my sin and my state as much as possible all the time? All of that for sin could never atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Such is our song. And let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that so many of the things in your word are above us. We pray that you would continue by your spirit to give us understanding. And more than anything, Father, we pray that you would give us faith to trust you and to trust your promises most of all that you have made to us in Christ. We pray that we would not put any confidence whatsoever in ourselves or in the things that we do or don't do. We pray that all of our confidence would be in Christ and that the fruit of that in terms of our love for other people and our good works would be obvious to the glory and praise of your name. And we pray for these things in Jesus name. Amen.